Chapter Seventeen of Clementina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clementina by A. E. W. Mason. Chapter Seventeen: The Flight to Italy, a Growing Cloud. But Gaydon was out of his reckoning. There were no fairy tales for Misset to overhear, and the Princess Clementina slept in her corner of the carriage. If a jolt upon a stone wakened her, a movement opposite told her that her sentinel was watchful and alert. Three times the Berlin stopped for a change of horses, and on each occasion Wogan was out of the door and hurrying the ostlers before the wheels had ceased to revolve. "'You should sleep, my friend,' said she. "'Not till we reach Italy,' he replied, and with the confidence of a child she nestled warmly in her cloak again and closed her eyes." This feeling of security was a new luxury to her after the months of anxiety in prison. The grey light of the morning stole into the Berlin and revealed to her the erect and tireless figure of her saviour. The sun leaped down the mountain peaks, and the grey of the light was now a sparkling gold. Wogan bade her highness look from the carriage window, and she could not restrain a cry of delight. On her left, mountain ridge rose behind mountain ridge, away to the towering limestone cliffs of Monte Scanupia. On her right, the white peaks of the Orto d'Abram flashed to the sun, and between the hills the broad valley of the Adige rolled southwards, a summer country of villages and vines, of mulberry trees and fields of maize, in the midst of which rose the belfries of an Italian town. "'This is Italy!' she cried. "'But the Emperor's Italy,' answered Wogan, and at half-past nine that morning the carriage stopped in the public square of Trent. As Wogan stepped on to the ground he saw a cloud of dust at the opposite side of the square, and wrapped in that cloud men on horseback like soldiers in the smoke of battle. He heard, too, the sound of wheels. The Prince of Baden had that instant driven away, and he had taken every procurable horse in the town. Wogan's own horses could go no further. He came back to the door of the carriage. "'I must search through Trent,' said he, "'on the mere chance of finding what will serve us. Your Highness must wait in the inn.' And Clementina, muffling her face, said to him, "'I dare not. My face is known in Trent, though this is the first time ever I saw it. But many gentlemen from Trent came to the Innsbruck Carnival, and of these a good number were kind enough to offer me their hearts. They were allowed to besiege me to their content. I must needs remain in the shelter of the carriage. Wogan left Misset to stand sentinel and hurried off upon his business. He ran from stable to stable, from inn to inn. The Prince of Baden had hired thirty-six horses. Six more were nowhere to be found. Wogan would be content with four. He ended in a prayer for two. At each house the door was shut in his face. Wogan was in despair. Nowhere could delay be so dangerous as at Trent, where there were soldiers, and a governor who would not hesitate to act without orders if he suspected the Princess Clementina was escaping through his town. Two hours had passed in Wogan's vain search. Two hours of daylight, during which Clementina had sat in an unharnessed carriage in the market square. Wogan ran back to the square, half expecting to find that she had been recognized and arrested. 
as he reached the square he saw that curious people were loitering about the carriage as he pushed through them he heard them questioning why travellers should on so hot a morning of spring sit muffled up in a close dark carriage when they could take their ease beneath trees in the inn garden one man laughed out at the princess and the comical figure she made with her scarlet cloak drawn tight about her face wogan himself had bought that cloak in strasbourg to guard his princess from the cold of the brenner and guessed what discomfort its ermine lining must now be causing her and this lout dared to laugh and make her this incomparable woman a butt for his ridicule wogan took a step towards the fellow with his fists clenched but thought the better of his impulse and turning away ran to the palace of prince taxis this desperate course alone remained to him he must have speech with the prince bishop himself at the palace however he was informed that the prince was in bed with the gout mr wogan however insisted you will present my duties to the prince you will show him my passport you will say that the count of cern has business of the last importance in italy and begs permission since the prince of baden has hired every post-horse in the town to requisition half a dozen farm horses from the fields mr wogan kicked his heels in the courtyard while the message was taken at any moment some rumour of the curious spectacle in the square might be brought to the palace and excite inquiry there might be another courier in pursuit besides the man whom gaydon kept a prisoner wogan was devoured with a fever of impatience it seemed to him hours before the prince's secretary returned to him the secretary handed him back his passport and on the part of the prince made a speech full of civilities here's a great deal of jam sir said wogan i misdoubt me but what there's a most unpalatable pill hidden away in it indeed said the secretary the prince begs you to be content and to wait for the post-horses to return ah ah cried wogan but that's the one thing i cannot do i must speak plainly it appears he drew the secretary out of earshot and resumed my particular business is to catch up the prince of baden he is summoned back to innsbruck do you understand he asked significantly sir we are well informed in trent as to the emperor's wishes said the secretary with a great deal of dignity no no my friend said wogan it is not by the emperor the prince of baden is summoned though i have no doubt the summons is much to his taste the secretary stepped back in surprise by her highness the princess he exclaimed she changes her mind she is willing where before she was obdurate to tell you the truth the prince plied her too hard and she would have none of him now that he turns his back and puts the miles as fast as he can between himself and her she cannot sleep for want of him the secretary nodded his head sagaciously her highness is a woman said he and that explains all but it will do her no harm to suffer a little longer for her obstinacy and to tell you the truth the prince taxis is so tormented with the gout that that you are unwilling to approach him a second time interrupted wogan i have no doubt of it i have myself seen prelates in a most unprelatical mood but here is a case where needs must i have not told you all there is a devil of a fellow called charles wogan the secretary nodded his head a mad irishman who has vowed to free her highness he has set out from strasbourg with that aim 
he will hang for it then but he will never rescue her and the secretary began to laugh i cannot upon my honour vex the prince again because a gallows bird has prated in his cups no no said wogan you do not follow me charles wogan will come to the gallows over this adventure for my part i would have him broken on the wheel and tortured in many uncomfortable ways these irishmen all the world over are pestilent fellows but the trouble is this if her highness hears of his attempt she is as you sagely discovered a woman a trivial trifling thing she will be absurd enough to imagine her rescue possible she will again change her mind and it is precisely that which general heister fears he would have her formally betrothed to the prince of baden before charles wogan is caught and hanged sky-high therefore since i was pressing into italy he charged me with this message to the prince of baden now observe this if you please suppose that i do not overtake the prince suppose that her highness hears of wogan's coming and again changes her mind who will be to blame not i for i have done my best not prince taxis for he is not informed but prince taxis's secretary the secretary yielded to wogan's argument he might be in a great fear of prince taxis but he was in a greater of the emperor's wrath he left wogan again and in a little while came back with the written permission which wogan desired wogan wasted no time in unnecessary civilities the morning had already been wasted the clocks were striking one as he hurried away from the palace and before two the princess clementina was able to throw back her cloak from about her face and take the air for the berlin was on the road from trent to roveredo those were the four worst hours since we left innsbruck she said i thought i should suffocate the revulsion from despair the knowledge that each beat of the hoofs brought them nearer to safety the glow of the sun upon a country which was italy in all but name raised them all to the top of their spirits clementina was in her gayest mood she lavished caresses upon her little woman as she called mrs Massey. she would have wogan give her an account of his interview with prince taxis's secretary she laughed with the merriest enjoyment over his abuse of charles wogan but it was not myself alone whom i slandered said he your highness had a share of our abuse our heads wagged gravely over woman's inconstancies it was not in nature but you must change your mind indeed your highness would have laughed but at all events her highness did not laugh now on the contrary her eyes lost all their merriment and her blood rushed hotly into her cheeks she became for that afternoon a creature of moods now talking quickly and perhaps a trifle wildly now relapsing into long silences wogan was troubled by a thought that the strain of her journey was telling its tale even upon her vigorous youth it may be that she noted his look of anxiety but she said to him abruptly and with a sort of rebellion you would despise any woman who had the temerity to change her mind nay i do not say that but it is merely politeness that restrains you you would despise her judging her by men when a man changes his mind why it is so he changes his mind but when a girl does it may well be that for the first time she is seriously exercising her judgment for her upbringing renders it natural that she should allow others to make up her mind for her at the first that i think is very true said wogan clementina however was not satisfied with his assent she attacked him again and almost vindictively 
you of course would never change your mind for any reason once it was fixed you are resolute you are quite quite perfect mr wogan could not imagine what he had done thus to provoke her irony madam he pleaded i am not in truth so obstinate a fellow as you make me out i have often changed my mind i take some pride in it on occasion her highness inclined to a greater graciousness i am glad to know it you shall give me examples one may have a stiff neck and yet no cause for pride wogan looked so woebegone under this reproof that clementina suddenly broke out into a laugh and so showed herself in a fresh and more familiar mood the good humour continued she sat opposite to mr wogan if she moved her hand her knee her foot must needs touch his she made him tell her stories of his campaigns and so the evening came upon them an evening of stars and mysterious quiet and a clear dark sky they passed roveredo they drew near to ala the last village in the emperor's territories five miles beyond ala they would be on venetian soil and already they saw the lights of the village twinkling like so many golden candles but the berlin which had drawn them so stoutly over these rugged mountain roads failed them at the last one of the hind wheels jolted violently upon a great stone there was a sudden cracking of wood and the carriage lurched over throwing its occupants one against the other wogan disentangled himself opened the door and sprang out he sprang out into a pool of water one glance at the carriage dark though the night was told him surely what had happened the axle-tree was broken he saw that clementina was about to follow him there is water said he it is ankle-deep and no white stone she answered with a laugh whereon i can safely set my foot no said he but you can trust without fear to my arms and he reached them out to her can i said she in a curious voice and when he had lifted her from the carriage she was aware that she could not he lifted her daintily like a piece of porcelain but to lift her was not enough he must carry her his arms tightened about her waist hers in spite of herself about his shoulders he took a step or two from the carriage with the water washing over his boots and the respectful support of a servant became the warm grip of a man he no longer held her daintily he clipped her close to him straining her breasts against his chest he was on fire with her she could not but know it his arms shook his bosom heaved she felt the quick hammering of his heart and a murmur an inarticulate murmur of infinite longing trembled from his throat and something of his madness passed into her and made a sweet tumult in her blood he stopped still holding her he felt her fingers clasp tighter he looked downwards into her face upturned to his they were alone for a moment these two alone in an uninhabited world the broken carriage the busy figures about it the smoking horses the lights of allah twinkling in the valley had not even the substance of shadows they simply were not and they never had been there were just two people alive between the poles not princess and servant but man and woman in the primitive relationship of rescuer and rescued and they stood in the dark of a translucent night of spring with the stars throbbing above them to the time of their passionate hearts 
and the earth stretching about them rich as black velvet. He looked down into her eyes as once in the night-time he had done before, and again he marvelled at their steadiness and their mysterious depths. Her eyes were fixed on his and did not flinch. Her arms were close about his neck. He bent his head towards her, and she said in a queer, toneless voice, low but as steady as her eyes, "'I know. Ah, but well I know. Last night I dreamed. I rode on your black horse into your city of dreams.' And the moment of passion ended in farce, for Wogan, startled by the words, set her down there and then into the pool. She stood over her ankles in water. She uttered a little cry and shivered. Then she laughed and sprang lightly onto dry soil, making much of her companion's awkwardness. Wogan joined in the laughter, finding therein, as she did, a cover and a cloak. "'We must walk to Allah,' said he. "'It is as well,' said she. "'There was a time when cavaliers laid their cloaks in the mud to save a lady's shoe-sole.' "'Madam,' said Wogan, "'the chivalry of to-day has the same intention.' "'But in its effect,' said she, "'it is more rheumatical.' Wogan searched in the carriage and drew out a coil of rope which he slung across his shoulders like a bandolier. Clementina laughed at him for his precautions, but Wogan was very serious. "'I would not part with it,' said he. "'I never travelled for four days without being put to it for a piece of rope.' They left the postillion to make what he could of the Berlin, and walked forward in the clear night to Allah. The shock of the tumble had alarmed Mrs. Massey. The fatigue of the journey had strained her endurance to the utmost. She made no complaint, but she could walk but slowly and with many rests by the way. It took a long while for them to reach the village. They saw the lights diminish in the houses. The stars grew pale. There came a hint of morning in the air. The laughter at Wogan's awkwardness had long since died away, and they walked in silence. Forty-eight hours had passed since the Berlin left Innsbruck. Twenty-four hours ago Clementina knew Wogan's secret. Now he was aware that she knew it. They could not look into each other's faces, but their eyes conversed of it. If they turned their heads sharply away, that aversion of their gaze spoke no less clearly. There was a link between them now, and a secret link, the sweeter on that account, perhaps, certainly the more dangerous. The cloud had grown much bigger than a man's hand. Moreover, she had never seen James Stewart. She had his picture, it is true, but the picture could not recall. It must create, not revivify his image to her thoughts, and that it could not do so that he remained a shadowy figure to her, a mere number of features, almost an abstraction. On the other hand, the king's emissary walked by her side, sat sleepless before her, had held her in his arms, had talked with her, had risked his life for her. She knew him. What she knew of James Stuart she knew chiefly from the lips of this emissary. On this walk to Allah he spoke of his master, and remorsefully, in the highest praise but she knew his secret. She knew that he loved her, and therefore every remorseful, loyal word he spoke praised him more than it praised his master. And it happened that just as they came to the outskirts of the village, she dropped a handkerchief which hung loosely about her neck. For a moment she did not remark her loss. When she did and turned, 
she saw that her companion was rising from the ground on which no handkerchief longer lay and that he had his right hand in his breast she turned again without a word and walked forward but she knew that kerchief was against his heart and the cloud still grew end of chapter seventeen